everybody, and welcome to another episode of Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. This is episode 21 with Charles Logan from the Ohio State University. So here we go. Three, two, one. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Praxis Pedagogy Podcast. We're so glad that you tuned in again with us. And uh, on this episode, we have the Charles Logan. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Good. I'm the only one. <laughs> I am. There's only one. Of That's all. Awesome. That I yeah. yeah. I, you ever, have you ever done it? Maybe you haven't done a Google search of your name before. Have you ever done that? Oh, I'm very conceited. Yeah. So uh, it's like every other day that searching for myself. <laughs> I, I did one a long time ago and I found out that uh, somebody has my name, but they're on death row down, down in one of the Southern states. And I thought, oh, that, that's not good. So. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hopefully there is no like family resemblance or. You know. I don't think so. Cause he was African-American. So then we'll just leave it at that. So. <laughs> because <laughs> that's just a little a little too close to the line but oh I, I just wanted to bring up one other thing um Clemson lost to LSU do you have any thoughts on that uh you know uh, as a relatively uh, newcomer to the Ohio State University uh you know I'm I'm, I'm all for uh, our football team I will out myself um uh, both of my parents attended the University of Michigan. Oh. Uh, and so that's, uh, you know, uh, I think somewhere in my, my contract, I need to uh, you know, give up all uh, family ties to the <laughs> University of Michigan. So, you know, I didn't necessarily have a dog in that, in that fight, but, uh, you know, I'm uh, all Buckeyes all the time these days. Yeah, nice. It's too bad that they lost to, uh, to Clemson. Uh, I, was, I was pulling for Ohio State. Uh, cause they're, they're, I guess they're one of my top two, three college football, uh, organizations. And, uh, so yeah, they're a fun team. Yeah, they are. And and they always seem to be in it. I mean, there's, there's a couple of years where they weren't even close, but they always seem to hang around and be in it and always in the conversation. And that stupid ranking system drives me crazy. Right. <laughs> that, that, I shouldn't say stupid. What, what's your solution? Yeah. What, what well, you, you know, let's, you I, I, th- I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And that's kind of where the conversation ends. It's like, yeah, I really right, don't right. know. I don't know. I, first I'm Canadian. So what can I speak into the system about Two, Um, I don't know if there's a better system out there, but I mean, for crying out loud, I, when Alabama can keep getting number one, that come on, man. Like, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I agree. I agree. Uh, you know, it's, a lot of, I'm sure, blood and ink has been uh, spilled in, in defense of various, uh, both ranking systems and, and teams. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's one of the, the fun parts about being a fan. Exactly. How do you like your new playoff system? Do you like that better than the old system? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a playoff system in general, I think, uh, you know, is, is a little bit more fun. It's been interesting to see. I'm also a, a big basketball fan. Oh. Um, I actually, I grew up outside Chicago. So all my, minus the University of Michigan, all my allegiances uh, are towards Chicago teams. Okay. And so I was spoiled, um, you know, uh, being uh, a kid at the sort of the height of the Michael Jordan mm-hmm. uh, era of the Chicago Bulls. It's been a rough, you know last decade or so. <laughs> um, but, you know, seeing basketball and certainly NCAA uh, basketball and sort of March Madness, I know I think the NBA is considering moving to some 
uh, other uh, format of, of sort of that that same kind of tournament style. Mm. Um, you know, it, it makes it a little more exciting rather than the you know grind of a seven game series, which I'm sure that you know advertisers enjoy and you know the teams make some money. But uh, as a fan, it can get a little bit you know tedious. It's like a game two of yeah. a five game, seven game series. Uh, and and baseball the same way. It's like all right, let's let's speed this up a little bit. Yeah, I, I would agree. I mean, the seven game series is grinding, and and you know the owners are never going to go for anything less, right? Because it's right when you're making millions. Too much of money dollars. to be made. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> a big money grab. Oh, good. Well, I yeah, I love March Madness too, man. If 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 I'm not a big basketball fan at, and at any level, but I I like tuning into the March Madness, especially the like of the week or two before, because people are going crazy with their brackets and they've got like oh, six yeah. or seven bracket sheets, and it's just like it's like a big game of War of Warcraft essentially, because everyone's trying to forecast the future. Oh, absolutely. And then, yeah, and it's fun to see those Cinderella teams oh, yeah. or those stories that emerge about. I think it was Loyola Chicago two years ago, mm-hmm. where they had, you know, the the nun who uh, had been, you know, some sort of like uh, communication with higher powers to, to get the team <laughs> right. as far as as far as it got. So those are always fun to see uh, those stories emerge. Yeah. And, you know, all of a sudden you find yourself rooting for a Loyola Chicago or, yeah. you know, some other sort of far flung school that, you know, on, on any day can beat, uh, you know, a Kentucky or a you know, North Carolina uh, Duke. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the beauty of March Madness is when you're one and done like that, it's there. And you see the, you see these students and I forget sometimes that they're still students, right? They're like eight foot gazillion and they can yeah. do everything and, and it's just so fast paced and you're like these these guys are still students like they're still like they're juniors some of them and you're like oh yeah yeah crying out loud man absolutely well and we won't get into you know whether they should be paid but, oh no uh, no no that's a whole separate <laughs> podcast we'll uh yeah. we'll leave that one alone we're talking about pedagogy <laughs> right that's right, uh, open uh, that's right. what's this podcast uh, all about again anyway. yeah. <laughs> good deal special edition uh yeah good deal thanks so much hey uh so tell our listeners a little bit about yourself obviously you're at the ohio state university but uh, tell us a little bit about yourself yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I am the educational technologist in the College of Education and Human Ecology at the Ohio State University. That is a mouthful. Um, but uh, essentially, my work focuses on the intersection of teaching, learning, and technology. I'm coming at the position from a background in teaching for most of my career as a high school English teacher. And it's only within the last year and a half or so that I moved into higher ed and specifically focusing on um, educational technology. Uh, I think my identity as a teacher is um, so deeply embedded in my sense of self mm-hmm. that um, I approach these questions of teaching technology from and, and learning from that, that um, teacher point of view, um, which I think is helpful. Um, and so that's where I'm, where I'm coming from. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there was if you personally, professionally have found a, a, a bit of a gap or a difficult transition from high school to higher ed, because there's, there is a gap there, right? But I wonder too, if it's helped you communicate to faculty there at the Ohio State that, hey, listen, this is, this is where I, I, I'm coming from that world. So there's, there's some credibility to what I say and what we're doing here. Yeah, yeah. The hardest gap is having to work during the summer. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but I, you know, I think you know, use the word credibility there, and I think 
um, especially as a staff member, um, that's always a challenge. Um, and I think also, you know, higher ed is such a hierarchical, um, you know, uh, place to be so that even if I'm not a staff member, um, I, you know, I've, I've talked to folks who um, might be, um, you know, an adjunct or um, they have a PhD and uh, because of the you know, job market being what it is, um, they're in a, you know, alt-ac or an uh, alternative academic job where, um, you know, I had a conversation this summer with um, a woman who uh, she's working as an instructional designer right now and has to slip into the fact uh, to conversations that she has a, as a PhD as a way of um, when, when speaking with other faculty as a way of sort of uh, you know checking that box and like okay now I'm going to listen to you wow. um, and so there are you know I think um, there are challenges in, in sort of having those conversations you know and certainly credibility is one of, of many uh, but the, the work is, is important work and, and I'm pretty passionate about it. Wow, that's cool. So what are you working on right now? Um, a, lot, a lot of things. Uh, so just today, um, I am helping to facilitate a book group. Um, and the book that we're reading is by Derek Bruff. Uh, it's called Intentional Technology. Then there's a colon, and I know it's an extended uh, <laughs> title, as, as all good uh, book titles uh, have in, in higher ed. Um, but it's a, one of a series that's um, out of the uh, West Virginia University Press, mm -hmm. uh, Teaching in Higher Ed, um, which is edited um, by James Lang, um, who a lot of folks mm -hmm. point to his book. Um, I think it's small teaching, mm -hmm. um, but there's a really, it's a really great um, series. So I'll plug that. Um, and so helping to facilitate, um, uh, Derek Ruff's book and thinking about, uh, again, you know, this question of open, what does that look like, mm -hmm. um, for our um, faculty and staff? So I've got 20 faculty and staff from our college who signed up for it. Um, and you know, one of the things that, um, is always, I think, a, a, an important question to ask in, in open is, um, who, who is the open for who's, uh, who determines what open looks like. Oh, yeah. And so as someone who's, you know, this is really, um, I'm, I'm fortunate enough to, to work, um, in, in a, you know, academic technologies, the group that I work in and we have our, our leader, um, is someone who sort of gives us the autonomy to pursue various projects. And so I'm really spearheading this, uh, <laughs> this effort. And so, you know, the responsibility falls on me in a lot of ways to, to sort of set the markers of what the experience might look like at the start. Um, but also, you know, in the sort of the spirit of, um, open pedagogy to think about, um, how do I turn, uh, the design of the process over to my fellow readers, my fellow learners, um, in a way that, um, is meaningful in a way that they might be able to replicate, um, in their own teaching practices. Mm -hmm. So trying to model what that looks like. So that might, you know, for example, be a slow chat on Twitter. Um, it might be, uh, other conversations that are happening, um, in more closed spaces. And so one of the things I'm also interested in, uh, is, uh, not thinking of, of open as a binary between, uh, you know, it's either open or it's closed. Right. Um, and in what kind of ways might we um, start to kind of deconstruct that, um, binary. Uh, and so that's the big thing that, that happened today, yeah. uh, amongst other things and, and working sort of with individual, um, staff and instructors on their projects where, in, uh, 
day seven of our of our semester here. So right. so far, uh, you know, nothing has exploded. Uh, so. <laughs> That's the bar I set. Oh, nothing, you know, caught on fire today. Uh, uh, that's a success. <laughs> that's a success. When you can walk yeah. away with a full fire extinguisher, you're still good, right? Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Nice. Nice. So how did you get uh, into the open? How did you get introduced to that? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, I was a um, high school English teacher for most of my career. And I think like many, um, I, I did some research and listened to, to some of the um, other episodes. It sounds like a lot of folks were doing open before they knew it. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of learn the terminology. Um, I completed a master's degree in educational technology. Uh, I guess I finished it in the spring of 2018. And um, we needed to use Twitter um, as uh, a way to communicate with one another in class and sort of grow our professional learning network. And um, I don't know how um, I came across Digital Pedagogy Lab, uh, but I did. And that then connected me to the work of people like Robert DeRosa um, and Rajiv uh, Janjiani um, and others. And so that um, helped me develop a kind of formal language, um, you know, which is, which is and is not helpful, I think, sometimes. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, that's sort of my, uh, my trajectory. Good, good. So how, how has it impacted what you do? I mean, obviously, it's your job surrounds it. Um, but how has it affected the how you teach and how you help faculty learn? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I think in particular, I, I have less to do with um, sort of the open educational resources side of things. That's certainly something that I, I connect people to. We have a great uh, program here at Ohio State called the um, Affordable Learning Exchange um, that supports faculty. Uh, they apply and I think they're awarded pretty hefty grants to help develop um, coursework um, that's licensed under open educational um, licensing. Um, and then it you know saves um, students you know, buckets of money. Sure. Um, and so that I'm like tangentially um, connected to, but um, really it's uh, open education practices. And so, um, you know, what that looks like more and more is thinking about how I design um, open um, and inclusive spaces. Uh, and so um, earlier, I guess it was last semester, it was on the heels of, um, I attended digital pedagogy lab this summer um, and was in the inclusive design track with Kevin Gannon. Um, and then, um, so I had a lot of these ideas sort of um, uh, floating in my head of, okay, well, how do I, how do I uh, enact these? Mm -hmm. um, how do I not just pay lip service to it, but actually uh, sort of make it part of my practice? And so um, another thing that was in the air at, at um, uh, digital pedagogy lab and elsewhere on Twitter is on grading. I know on this podcast oh, yeah, too. Yeah. Um, and so I thought, okay, um, what does that look like at Ohio state? And so, um, I actually talked to some folks at, at DPL. Um, one woman who is, uh, just leaving, uh, Ohio state as a grad student and connected with her about, you know, are there folks that, you know, who are, who are doing ungrading. Um, and so I was able to put together a panel um, with faculty, but also graduate students. And so that was really important to me um, to have graduate students be on the panel. Mm -hmm. um, and so again, that notion of uh, uh, you know, co-creating experience, uh, not just for students, um, but with students, um, and not just for faculty, but with faculty. Mm -hmm. And so I think, um, you know, had this been even three, two years ago, um, I would have, uh, 
gone about the design process, um, you know, trusting myself to do a great job. Um, and and uh, it probably would have been okay, but of course, you know, I have my biases. I, I have, um, you know, uh, my assumptions about how, uh, you know, these things should work. And so I put those aside um, uh, as best I could, which, you know, is often um, not really realistic, but at least um, trying to sort of interrogate those assumptions and biases. And so, um, Got together the the panelists, um, sort of word of mouth, reaching out to folks, um, and then just had a series of, of coffees um, at uh, uh, our art museum here and thinking about well, what what do you want this uh, experience to be like for you for um, for our audience? Um, you know, what are the kinds of resources that you would want to share um, that you feel comfortable? Um, and and then what kind of again licenses might we put on those? Who would they be accessible to? Who would they not be, and why? Right. So just being much more um, intentional about um, creating a what I hope are open and inclusive spaces by um, you know sort of you know opening the doors and letting uh, you know people in um, to kind of determine as a group what what they need and what they desire um, and kind of reaching a, a workable consensus right. um, and, and being able to, to say no to some things um, you know I, I don't think open or inclusive means um, you say yes to everything and and so I think that was important too and so using that experience to try to think about what that looks like you know in an online learning uh, experience whether it's a course or something I'm setting up um, and then have, helping faculty sort of think through those questions as well. And that's really um, what I'm working on these days. Nice. Well, what's the most pressing question when it comes to ungrading from a faculty perspective? That's a good question. I think it depends who you ask. Yeah. So, you know, at the panel, um, and this was this was a limitation in part just because of the people I, I, I know. You know, people will ask me sometimes who don't work at Ohio State, like, oh, do you know so-and-so? I'm like, you know, this is a university that has like 60,000 undergrads, <laughs> exactly. and I don't even know, how, you know, how many uh, faculty and staff. So it's like, uh, no, I, I unfortunately don't know that person. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so the panelists ended up being folks who were all from um, – the humanities yep. and so a number of the the people who attended were not in the humanities um and um, they also and or they also taught very large classes okay. um so we're talking you know like 300 people yep. um and so i think those are those were the often the most pressing questions that um that we received um and i know and i know there are people who are who have better answers to those questions who subsequently i've i found on twitter and be like oh I should, you know, connect you um, to these other people. But um, I think that's always the, it's not as, I don't think it's that people were, I mean, some people I'm sure were skeptical of, mm -hmm. of you know, the whole undertaking. Um, but I think like a lot of things um, in teaching, I think particularly in higher ed where, um, you know, and especially at a, at a place like Ohio State, that is a, it's an R1, it's a research one university and people's careers often um, hinge upon not their teaching, but their research. And so to devote time to something like ungrading, which, uh, you know, is, is a pretty radical thing. Uh, I think it's hopefully becoming less and less so, but to, to get that faculty um, buy-in for something that might not work, that's something that might, um, you know, come back with negative uh, course evaluations and those evaluations uh, we know are not, um, you know, fair towards lots of different groups. Mm -hmm. um, and so there, there are those sort of, those sort of questions, um, but also then just like 
the how do I do this um, yeah. kind of questions. Yeah. It's kind of a double-edged sword, right? Because if people are looking for tenure, they're not going to go down that ungrading route because they, they need all that feedback to boost their tenure applications. And then people who have tenure, they've worked all this, they put all this energy into getting this product. Now they're, now they're facing a whole new energy expansion to change it. And why would they want to change it now that they're in? Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I've had conversations with faculty who you know, are, are pretty forthright about, you know, once they're granted tenure, it's like, oh, now I can do what I want to do. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and so, you know, and, and it's, uh, I mean, I, I get it. It's a bind that they're put in. I don't necessarily blame the individual. I mean, I, it's the sort of the structural ways that the institution puts pressure on people. Um, and I don't know if things are are better in Canada. You know, I think uh, as as an as an American or a uh, you know someone who I think has sometimes a, a very kind of uh, rosy eyed view of it's it's always better in Canada. <laughs> so I don't know uh, if that if that's the case or if there are sort of similar pressures. Um, and if someone is interested in ungrading um, or doing, you know, uh, developing uh, open education resources or otherwise, if there's that, if there's more freedom, I guess. Um, yeah. And that's a good question because uh, my background is trades and vocational education. So, yeah. you know, the, the topic of ungrading kind of resonates with us in the sense that, you know, I, I teach or I taught plumbing, gas fitting, pipe fitting, that, that kind of stuff. So, you know, the, 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 the question always centered around, well, is it going to pass an inspection or not? That's, that's very binary. It's black and white. Does it leak? Does it not leak? I mean, we can test that kind of stuff. Right. But how do you, how do you, how do you, how do you sign a letter grade to that? And, and it's, it's always been a, a, a challenge for faculty to even put rubrics together and ask themselves, okay, so like, well, how do we, how do we, and it's a very deficit minded system too. <clears throat> pardon me, where they go, well, how can I, how can I, engineer something where I have to take marks away, right? Because this, this everyone gets a hundred percent idea doesn't resonate either. Right. So, um, yeah, it's, it's tricky for us. And when it comes to the tenure versus non-tenure, we don't really call it that here necessarily in the vocational world, we call it full-time or part-time or permanent full-time versus temporary full-time. And, but it's the same mindset, right? That when instructors come in and they're on a temporary contract, I mean, they'll do anything, right? <laughs> They're looking at, they, they know, like, especially now, I don't know what it's like in Ohio right now, but right now it's snowing outside and we've got like five inches of snow. I'll tell you, I'd rather be in a classroom than back out in the field working on systems, right? So if I'm in, if I'm in the system, I don't want to go back. So I'll, I'm willing to do anything. But once mm -hmm. I got that full-time status, man, uh, it's, uh, you can't do anything to me. So short of harming somebody or doing something massively illegal, um, I'm not going to lose my job. And then, but then it's the same thing of, I've done all this work to get here. Why would I want to now start changing my pedagogical approach to things now that I'm here? And so it's kind of the same struggle, ironically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, growth, growth, whether you're you know, an, an educator or any other field, uh, I think oftentimes, right, that these institutions or structures don't reward uh, experimentation no, um, no. and failure, which is also ironic because it's, uh, you know, something that we ask our, our students to do and, yeah. and yet, uh, you know, we don't model it for them. Yeah, good, uh, point. So, good point. I was just sorry. having a conversation with another educator about that very thing. And, you know, we, we ask people to, 
to fail because that's the best way to learn. We know that as educators is the best way to learn, but not us. Nope. Cause I got to be perfect. That, Cause I don't want to be judged by my peers as being anything less than an, an expert professional. Right. And, and, right. you know, we're, we're subject matter experts and we're given this label and, and now somehow I have to live up to that. So why would I want to experiment? Cause now I'm not going to be an expert. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think having, I have a two and a half year old. And so I think having a toddler, um, it was that pressure to like be the, the perfect parent. At least I, I feel that pressure, especially in public. Mm-hmm. And I think having a toddler will, uh, uh, at least for me, has removed any kind of illusion that <laughs> I will be a perfect parent. So I try to uh, apply those lessons yeah. of humility uh, to other walks of, of life. Exactly. Yeah, I've got four kids myself. They're actually four adults now almost. But yeah, that, that toddler stage, I it was hard. But the one thing I hated the most was the tantrum. Like if, they, if they just had a complete meltdown in public, that, oh man, that just, you just want to crawl under a rock and die. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I have so much more empathy for folks Fl- flying on airplanes. I feel yeah. like a younger, a younger self would have like, you know, huffed and puffed at the crying kid and the, and the parents. And I was just like, you know, fist bump. Like I, I like, good luck. Yeah. I'm here if you need me. Yeah. yeah. Every, everyone's <laughs> buying the, the earbud packages. That's the, that's the stewardess goes down the line. Right. 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 right, right. Oh, that's cool. Hey. Um, so what would you recommend to those of us, uh, who are teaching maybe for the first time, second time, or for a long time, what would you recommend to us to kind of level up our pedagogy when it comes to experimenting with OER? So one of the things that um, I am grappling with in OER and open is a kind of growing pushback against open. Mm. And so when it comes to the user experiment, you know, at least to sort of consider, um, I'm going to, just look at my notes here because actually it was yesterday <laughs> there was a, a blog post from a um, librarian named Mandy Hank. Um, she's in New Zealand and the um, piece that she published is called Open is Cancelled mm. um, and she um, very conscientiously and you know uh, uh, writes a provocative piece in which she essentially has a great line um, that I've been mulling over in the last 24 hours I've read it the open movement failed when it centered freedom over justice wow um, and so and even I think earlier in our conversation I was talking about you know I think one of the benefits of open is that is that freedom but um, it's sort of whose freedom right. <laughs> and and how how is that sort of accomplished so you know, in terms of kind of trying to experiment um, I wonder if it's in less ways thinking about you know revising what we're already doing, mm-hmm. but sort of reimagining it all together. Yeah. Um, that's one of the things that, that uh, she talks about too, is this sort of stunted imagination um, when it comes to, to open. Um, and, and I don't know if I necessarily agree with her, but I, but I do think for me as someone who relatively new to kind of the kind of formal space of open mm-hmm. and kind of the scholarship of, of open is to, um, uh, you know, search out actively those those voices who are, who are criticizing um, what open is and looks like um, and sort of uh, again sort of reimagining what it might look like as a more kind of diverse um, and sort of horizontally led um, uh, you know, undertaking endeavor philosophy um, rather than that sort of top-down uh, approach um, that uh, at least she argues uh, is something that's that's failed and, and I think others have um, 
voiced that that concern not just yesterday but for you know um, two three years or more yeah and it seems like there's there's different voices in the open movement too right there's a real strong social justice underpinning to open which i i really like and gravitate towards um and there seems to be and i, I may not be choosing the right words but there's over some over anxious people in that camp where that's that's the big focus and the big push and then there's 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 another view of it saying well it's it's really an alternative to to uh, standard publishing and uh, and then there's there's the other aspect as too is a social justice issue issue as well when it comes to student savings um, and then there's the whole open pedagogy piece involved in the open movement and and looking at it through the the lens of an instructor and I wonder I wonder if there's a balance between all of those those pieces in the sense that it's all part of the open world, perhaps. And I've heard some people say this, that really may, maybe just open is just good pedagogy. Yeah, I mean, I think again, it, it's sort of who who is it, who is it open for? Mm -hmm. who, who is sort of setting those boundaries? Um, yeah, I think there's an, a, we have a responsibility. Um, you know, one of the other things I'm, contending with too is you know um the ways in which my privilege and power operate right. in this space yep. and thinking about uh you know how to be an ally and so i i think you know for me i can as you know i a white able-bodied uh, heterosexual cisgendered man mm -hmm. and i can move through the world um and and you know in a very open fashion right and so um yeah, I think I think in for some perhaps open is good pedagogy, um, but I think we've got to um, be a little bit. Um, I think interrogate what when we say open, who who sort of gets to determine what what open looks like, and and then as I said before, sort of not um, casting out quote unquote sort of closed as as deficient somehow. Um, you know, one of the other pieces that I read recently um, was a. Um, piece um that actually came across from jess mitchell mm -hmm. who i would highly recommend folks follow um she works at the um center for inclusive um research mm -hmm. i think look at my notes here um at um ocad at the um, ontario um, college of arts and design um, but it was actually a faculty member at um, university of british columbia um who wrote a piece called towards a methodology of closure and looking at sort of indigenous ways of, of knowing and um gathering knowledge and and to say you know this is this is not for you right. um you know white man um and and um set, setting that aside and say okay you're you're right and so i think that can also be generative in ways that are, are important so yeah i guess that these are some of the big questions <laughs> that i'm wrestling with uh, i don't have good answers uh, you know, in terms of what to experiment what to, or to try but i can at least those are the questions that that are um i've not keeping me up at night, but, uh, you know, waking me up in, in the morning after a fresh cup of coffee. <laughs> nice. Jess Mitchell is going to be a keynote for us, uh, BC campus at the festival of learning this year. So, um, I'm, I'm sure that it will be at least recorded. I think it'll be live streamed as well. So, um, if she's uh, struck a chord with you, you need to uh, tune in and listen to that. It'd be, uh, yeah, that'd be, awesome. that'd be good. Uh, May 11th to 13th. So, let me just check the calendar to see when your episodes <laughs> comes out because when this releases it might be uh 
might be a, an outdated uh, reference there. I'll, I'll have to check. Anyway, I'll make sure that it gets in the show notes that uh, yeah, that that's there. But um, cool. Uh, so what are, you mentioned that you're reading. What are you reading right now? Yeah, I just started uh, Ruha Benjamin's book called... Um, just started it like two days ago um (laughs) race after technology Uh, and it was actually so she keynoted um, digital pedagogy lab last uh summer Mm -hmm. um one of two keynotes robin dressed was the other um and uh the lovely people there sean michael morris um jesse stumble um organized it Uh, they actually purchased books for everybody uh and so well maybe we purchased it for ourselves when we bought our (laughs) registered (laughs) (laughs) that's true i didn't think about that this whole time i was thinking oh you're so gracious uh (laughs) we'll just leave it at that yeah 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 um and so yeah i it the the name um or or, you know what sort of the concern of the book is um is this notion of the new jim code which is a riff on the new jim crow which is a uh that was published by michelle alexander that looks at the uh, u.s um i think in particular u.s um justice system and how um sort of uh, is is a long racist history and right. um, reimagines or re not reimagines but um, is is based on, on Jim Crow and, and um, so New Jim Code uh, is uh, thinking about the ways that technology under the guise of um, either kind of objective or even progressive uh, veneer is in fact um, deeply problematic and, and racist and um, so that's that's uh, the other sort of um, not other, but one uh, of a few different kind of uh, uh, streams in which I'm attempting to swim in. You guys use so many um, swimming metaphors on the show. So I'm glad that I was able to fit one in. Uh, lots of pools. I'm, I'm going to be in a stream this time. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, nice. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah, this notion of sort of ethical um, technology or, or sort of justice oriented technology uh, uh, and approaches to technology. So uh, that's the book I'm reading. Uh, I miss reading fiction. I don't read enough fiction, uh, but uh, George Saunders is someone who uh, I really enjoy reading. Mm-hmm. He's mostly a short story writer. He wrote a novel um, that involved lots of ghosts, including Abraham Lincoln's called Lincoln and the Bardo that came out a few years ago. Okay. So I'll plug George Saunders as well. Nice, nice. Well, let's float around that question a little bit more. Um, so <laughs> see what I did there? Uh, yeah. Uh, who, who are you following on Twitter? That's, uh, that's capturing your attention right now. Yeah. So I would say sort of building off those, I, I would say Jess Mitchell, um, Chris Gilliard, um, is someone who I think, um, everybody should follow, but particularly if you're involved in or have concerns about, um, technology, not only in the educational space, but surveillance of writ large. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so I would recommend both of them um, and the hashtag digped D-I-G-P-E-D again um, I feel like I'm not afraid to say that I'm a a fanboy of Digital Pedagogy Lab and and the folks and the work that they're doing so uh, yeah I think that's a good hashtag to that I think one of the things I really enjoyed about attending Digital Pedagogy Lab was that there are just so many rich ideas that are, that are kind of floating in the air and pe- and conversations to join in really inspiring people. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I would, I would uh, play that hashtag as well. Very cool. Very cool. Who's your favorite band when you're, when you're in the groove, who do you like to listen to? Oh boy. Um, I don't know if I could pick one. Um, but I think that I was, the, you know, if I, um, think about sort of my, 
my loyalty over time. Um, you know, what bands have, have I been loyal to the longest? Um, one is, and this, this one's probably the most problematic for my loyalty because there is a while where, uh, you know, it's hard to, to enjoy their music, but the band Wilco. Wilco. Uh, yeah, they're um, sort of as a, a sort of alt rock group mm-hmm. um, or alt country group, excuse me. Um, Jeff Tweedy. Um, they're, uh, as I said, Chicago um, land is, is my, my home. Uh, they're, they're from Chicago. Um, and then uh, Radiohead and The National, I think, are the other two nice. that... Um, you know, it's like whatever they put out, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll buy it. Nice. And, and I know it'll be good. So. Good work. Good work. Hey, I asked this question of a lot of my guests. I try to ask it of all of them, but sometimes I forget. But I want to make sure I ask this of you. What impact, uh, Charles, do you want to have in the open space? Yeah, I think I go back to that idea of, of being an ally and thinking about ways that um, I can work with others to um, co-create open and inclusive spaces um, that you know are, are uh, trying to achieve justice, whatever that looks like. Um, and, and I think my work on a day-to-day in sort of a class that that is a little bit more abstract. But I even think about something like ungrading, oh, you know, and if we think yeah. about grading as as a type of surveillance, or we think about um, the ways that um, you know a traditional textbook might be gathering you know data on students, or even you know we won't go into this <laughs> today. I know we don't have much time left, but you know this the the sale of Instructure that owns yeah. Canvas, which is the LMS that that we use, and I know that a lot of folks use, and sort of the um, what happens to not only student data but instructor data, you know, staff data, um, and so I think there's a way to have those conversations. Um, both on a on sort of an individual level, but also start start sort of um, thinking about you know institutional level um, conversations and, and trying to to make that change and and to make it sort of linked arm in arm with others um, in in sort of that march towards a, a future that that we imagine together. Um, and it's not just something that one or two people um, construct that we then all have to to sort of. Uh, live and, and try to survive it. Nice, nice. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's been a, it's been a pleasure having a, this conversation with you. And um, maybe uh, we'll have you back. And uh, you know Karen North. I do know. Yeah, yeah she uh, sits right next to me. Okay. Uh, well, maybe maybe, yeah. maybe we'll have the both both of you back on a reunion tour. And uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll have a Ohio State uh, represent. Nice, nice. We'll have to make sure everything's red and white. That's. Uh, Perfect. Uh, excuse me. It's scarlet and gray. I'm sorry, scarlet and gray. <laughs> there you go. Scarlet and gray. Everyone yeah. now, now we know. The Ohio yeah. State University, scarlet gray. Beautiful. Anyway, thanks again, Charles. Really appreciate it. And uh, you have a great day today. Thanks. I appreciate it. Okay. Take care.